In this episode, I'm joined by Rupert Spira, a teacher of the Direct Path Method of Advaita and an internationally acclaimed ceramic artist. In this episode, Rupert discusses his childhood in British boarding school, his disenchantment with science, and his discovery of spirituality. Rupert explains how his decision to pursue a career in pottery caused a rift with his father and reveals the profound significance of their subsequent reconciliation many years later. Rupert recounts his intensive apprenticeship with the Zen master-like British studio potter Michael Cardew and shares the essence of his artistic process as it expresses both in ceramics and in his work as a teacher of non-duality. Rupert also discusses personality cults in the arts and spirituality, the seductiveness of adulation as a spiritual teacher, the apparent conflict between beauty and truth, and why awakening so often stills the artistic impulse, but can also liberate it. So without further ado, Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm very delighted to uh, be interviewing you today. You've said from your mid-teens that the nature of reality uh, became your main interest. But, and I'd like to ask you a bit about that. But actually, I'm wondering, um, can you go a bit before that and perhaps tell us a bit about your childhood, your upbringing, and also your education? Yes. In fact, my, my interest in these matters goes all the way back, really, as, as far as I can remember. And not that I could say that I was interested in my childhood. However, I did always have a, a deep feeling. And uh, my mother um, regularly reminds me that aged seven, I apparently said to her, I feel that everything is God's dream and that our job is to make it as pleasant a dream as possible. So I had this childish um, intuition uh, um, articulated in, in the Christian language, because that was the tradition that I was brought up in, that, that, that reality was uh, um, the, the activity of God's mind uh, and that um, our, uh, our role as apparent individuals was, was somehow to, 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 to bring the truth of that into into existence to share it in our lives so this was a very childish intuition which actually hasn't evolved very much obviously the the um the way i speak about it has evolved a great deal so um i, I had a um my parents were were um not not religious but my mother certainly was interested in these matters so it, it was these ideas were around me in my childhood as I was growing up and they really were first formulated in me um, at the age of uh, 15, 15, 16 when I uh, discovered the, the uh, poetry of Rumi and uh, soon after that I, I, I learned to uh, meditate, uh, mantra meditation in the Advaita Vedanta tradition. Um, so just re rewinding a little bit. Um, so from the age of, of seven, I, I, was, I went to boarding school and I was at boarding school for, for 10 years. Um, uh, boys only, uh, English public school system with all the um, benefits and disadvantages that come with that. Perhaps not the, the time to go into, into detail about that. Um, but you know, such an education—it's a—it's a mixed blessing. Uh, there are some wonderful 
Uh, it's a very good education, very classical education. There are some wonderful things that come with it, uh, but but it also has a, 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 a there's a price to be paid for being taken away from one's parents at such a young age to be in an all male environment. That there is a price to be paid. So um, I, I I was exposed to the, the the full range of the English public school system. Um, as I say, fast forward ten years, mid teens, I came in contact with uh, the poetry of Rumi, uh, the, the the teaching of the classical Advaita Vedanta um, tradition. And up until that point, I had wanted to be a, um, a biochemist or, or to study medicine. But my my kind of incipient career as a scientist took an abrupt um, change. At that time, I also came across the um, the, the work of Michael Cardew, one of the founding fathers of the British studio pottery movement. So in my mid-teens, there, there was a big, really a big upheaval. Uh, I was introduced to the arts and to the spiritual tradition in, in the Sufi and Advaita traditions. And, and this really, from then on, really became the backbone, the, the foundation of my life. Um, and I started, I started meditating. I learned the Mevlevi turning. I learned Gurdjieff's movements. I started attending weekly meetings and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. You've said that elsewhere that there was something in your studies as a biochemist or a budding biochemist, there was something about the scientific way of knowing that uh, disturbed you and that you became disenchanted with eventually. Something about uh, these are theories that are replaced by theories that are replaced by theories, and you had an urge to uh, contact or find what can we really know is true. Yes, yes, you're right, um, and in fact, this this um, intuition was precipitated on one particular occasion when when I was at school. It was actually after a physics lesson, where where it became clear to me that that there could be the way I formulated it to myself was there could be no end to objective knowledge. One could never reach certainty in objective knowledge. There would always be something more. To know what, what what we know now objectively will always be replaced by something else, uh, and and that, that's the nature of objective knowledge. But that, that I realised that objective knowledge was not the way to explore or recognise the nature of reality. That that it would be endlessly frustrating one horizon after another that, 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 that there could be no finality there no no certainty so so this this question formulated itself in my mind what 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 can we know for absolutely certain what what is not dependent upon um the limitations of the finite mind is there anything that can be we can know for certain beyond or prior to the limitations of the finite mind now i didn't um, articulate to myself quite as clearly as I am doing now. It was it was more of an um, it was more of an intuition, and to begin with, it, it kind of gripped me in a kind of visceral way. But later, I formulated it in in, in this way, and I think this was uh, largely responsible for my disenchantment with the the the, the, the scientific. Uh, I, I can't even say that I had begun a scientific. Career, but that was the direction I was he heading in, and I think this intuition put an end to that. I, I, I realized another way of putting it would be: I realized it could never be deeply satisfying. 
It would never satisfy those existential questions. Who am I really? What is the nature of reality? At what point did you turn towards ceramics as a possible outlet here or a possible expression? Um, in 1975, you mentioned coming across the work of Michael Cardew. Yes. Um, and uh, I believe you, it was an exhibition you saw of his that really uh, revolutionized your, your life trajectory. You've, you've described it in those sorts of terms. But there seems to be, a, is there a gap between that and the uh, disenchantment with, with science as a path? It, it, it was... It was a, um, a conflux of various influences within, I don't know the exact chronology of it, but within a year, I, 1975, I was 15. Within a year, I had seen this exhibition of Michael Cardew's. It was his, uh, it was an exhibition put on at the Camden Art Centre in London to commemorate his 75th birthday. Uh, I was 15, he was 75. And Within a year of that, I had also uh, kept come across the poetry of Rumi, and shortly after that, I first saw the Mevlevi uh, turning in London, and shortly after that, I learnt a mantra meditation and began to study the Advaita Vedanta teaching at Collet House in London. So, uh, w w within a period of, let, let's say, a, a year or 18 months, the, these two very powerful in, um Influence. I was in, I was introduced to these two very very powerful influences: the arts and uh, um, spiritual understanding. And of course, it, it's no coincidence that um, that this happened at the same time in 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 my life. That that they were really the same event. What one um, one through the faculty of perception, and the other through thought and feeling. So, if we if we can say that as human beings we think, we feel, and we perceive on all three of these channels, during this very potent time in my mid-teens, I was I had this intuition of a reality that I had not up until then um, known about, or at least I had as a child, but I had forgotten about it in my upbringing. And they, they, these three, these influences, they reawakened in me this um, feeling for the divine, this feeling for truth, for, for, for reality. And how was this uh, reawakening and subsequent change of direction received by those around you? It was received very positively by my mother, who was herself, is herself an artist, and was already um, uh, at, at Collet House in London. Um, uh, so it was, uh, she, she was delighted. My father was, um, I think it's reasonable to say that he was horrified. <laughs> his, um, his, his father had been a, a, a well-known uh, doctor in, in London. And he was very happy that for, for several years, his eldest son had, had um, intended to follow him. And, uh, you know, he, he had not, um, he, he had not imagined that uh, spending a small fortune on my education would lead towards, lead to me becoming a, a potter. He did not at that time think it a, a, a worthy career uh, uh, for someone who had received um, the education that I had. However, to be fair to him, um, he changed over the years. And, and to be honest, I don't blame him. 
I think if um, I, as I'm sure you know, I also have a, a son, one son, he's 22 years old now, I think, well, I think perhaps things are different now, but but if I had, um, if, if he in his mid-teens had just, uh, on what at least appeared to be a, a, a whim, just decided to, to take off, to leave school, to take off, to, to, to do something which was so far outside my own comprehension as to seem to be uh, completely foolhardy, impossible to make a living, I, I think I would probably have been alarmed. So I, I don't, looking back, I'm a lot more sympathetic now with my father's uh, response. He was afraid for me. You know, he was concerned, as, as all fathers are for their children. He wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to make it in the world. And that this, he thought that I was just dropping out. And actually, he might have been right. It turned out that he wasn't. Um, so, um, yeah, he, 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 was, he was very alarmed. Uh, but again, to be fair to him, he was very supportive. I then went to art school. I did an apprenticeship with Michael Cardew. I set up my first studio in my early 20s. And he was very supportive. And it was 10 years later, beautiful uh, turning point in our lives when he came down to visit me in my studio. And one of the few times I saw my father cry, he wasn't really crying, but he had tears in his eyes. He said, you know, Rupert, I'm envious of you. I'm so glad you didn't follow me into the city. It's you, 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 you're, you have a wonderful life. It's so fulfilling. By this time, I was beginning to, to be successful, having having uh, exhibitions around the world. So he no longer feared for my for my financial well-being and my security. And and there was this beautiful moment when he turned around and uh, just acknowledged that he was that he had thought I had done the right thing. How did that land with you? Oh, my goodness, that it was that was a that was a, a, a turning point in our lives, you know, most if not all um, children, but maybe sons, young men in particular. Now, want the blessing of their father, want, want their father to feel good about them, to feel proud of them. To, and if one's father thinks negatively of one, it, 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 it's a burden on one. So this was, uh, it was the first time that I had really felt his blessing since I was a, since I was a young child. And it, it, it liberated me from, from a kind of a heavy burden, the burden of not, I, I never doubted my father's love. That was never in question, never doubted that for a moment. But I think as a young man, you need more, more than just your father's love. You need his, his approval, his support. And um, I, I uh, although he was never, um, he never actually expressed it, but I could feel it, that I didn't have his total approval. And this weighed on me. I, I, I wanted him to feel good about me. I wanted his blessing. So when this um, finally came, I was probably in my late 20s now, perhaps 30. Um, it, it liberated me from, a, from a, a sorrow that I didn't even really know was there. And actually, our relationship, it was very healing in our relationship too. We, we then, having had a, a, a difficult 10 years, really from then on, we just became closer and closer. Wonderful. And in addition to your father's blessing, as you pointed out, um, at that time, you were beginning to uh, achieve uh, or attract international interest. And indeed, in your 30 years as, as a potter, you, you were highly acclaimed and highly successful. I'd like to ask you a bit about Michael Cardew, if you don't mind. 
as you mentioned, you apprenticed with him for two years. And you said that that was in many ways a complete re-education. I think he was about 80 or in his 80s when when that took place. For those who may not know, who was Michael Cardew? Um, in your experience, what sort of a man was he? And how was it that you came to begin this apprenticeship relationship? Well, Michael Cardew, he was, <clears throat> he's one of those people that really um, defy description or definition, because almost anything I can say about him, I can also say the, the opposite with equal conviction. Um, he was, he was highly intelligent, he had studied classics at Oxford, uh, then he had, he had dropped out and tried to revive the English slipwear tradition, first of all in Gloucestershire, then um, the war came along, he went to, to Africa, uh, Nigeria and, and Ghana for 25 years and then came back aged I think 65 to um, Cornwall where he started um, a, a, another pottery where, where, where I uh, later lived and worked with him during the last two years of his life. Uh, Michael was a, he was a, um, a fierce, irascible, unpredictable, um, highly intelligent and articulate but also he was very very soft very tender um and you just never know what you were going to get from from one moment to another and he always had two apprentices living and working in the house with him it seemed that most of our time was spent cooking and gardening and that we made pots in our spare time but it was it was like a whole kind of it was like a re-education um he he was just just unlike it. He was like an old Zen master. And of course, I, I I wouldn't I didn't even realize it at the time. But later, looking back on him, I I realized he. It's not like I don't think he was like a Zen master. I think he was a Zen master. Although he would never um, speak directly of of any of these matters. But his whole approach to 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 life to the pottery, um, it was like living with a with the Zen master, you had to be constantly on on, on, on your toes, on, on, on high alert. Um, and nothing was said uh, directly. Um, let me give you an example. I, I remember um, I'd been making bowls. I'd been there for about six months. I'd been making bowls all day and was beginning to be a little, you know, I thought I am really beginning to get I was feeling pleased with myself and, and Michael, it was um, the, the, the workshop was along, it was an, uh, an inn that he had converted. It was the skittle alley of the inn. So it was a long, narrow room. He walked into the room at one end of the room and kind of made his way up through the, through the workshop to where I was working at, at the other end. And then for a long time, he stood surveying these, these lines of, of, of bowls. I'm sure he didn't do it on, on purpose, but as he was doing so, I could feel my, my pride kind of rising as I, as I, presumed he, he, he was, you know, not noticing my progress. And I was uh, expecting to receive my first proper accolade from him. And I remember I can still, I can close my eyes and see and hear him saying it now. He said, Rupert, you haven't begun to take this shape into yourself and left. And that was, that, that, that was how, that was how the teaching worked. That was how the apprenticeship worked. There would be no more conversation about it. There'd be no explanation. It would be up to you to take the medicine and find out what he meant by it. 
and um, make the necessary correction. On, on another occasion, I was um, turning the foot rings on a bowl and, and he came in and on a series of bowls, he, he came in and, and he said, um, uh, Rupert, these bowls, these bowls aren't like real people. They're like actors on a stage and then, and then left. And, and you were just left just wanting the earth to swallow you up. It was just feeling completely, completely crushed, but also not knowing exactly what was meant. You, you had to find out then what was meant. And then on another occasion, uh, we were packing the kiln. It was this huge wood-fired kiln and uh, he had decorated a series of large dishes. And I, it was my job to, to pack them all in the kiln. It was rather precarious. I'd stack them all up, one on top of the, another. There must have been 14, 15 or 16 of these big, beautiful painted dishes. And there were kind of bricks around. They, they were fired upside down on their unglazed rims and there were bricks around each one. Anyway, um, I obviously didn't realize, but I, uh, one of the bricks at the bottom must have been loose. Anyway, during the firing, they collapsed. Of course, we, we didn't know this because it's all sealed up and the firing takes 36 hours. It's an old, big, huge wood-fired kiln. Then it takes a week to cool down. So after a, after a week, we came to unpack the kiln and, and all the dishes had, had collapsed onto each other. And then because, it, because the kilns fired to 1300 degrees, they had all welded into, a, into this ugly, gnarled mass of, of, of split dishes with the glazes all kind of welded into each other. It was a, it was a terrible sight. And I, I had to go and tell Michael, who, who at that time was writing his autobiography. He used to have a, a, a kind of office up above the, 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 the stable. And so I, I remember going to him. I mean, I, I was just in trepidation, shaking. I was so afraid. I remember going to Mike, Michael and then I explained to him and uh, he just smiled at me so gently. He said, Rupert, don't worry. It won't be the last time in your life that something like this happens and carried on writing. It was like, no, he couldn't have been. And no, no, never mentioned it again. It was just, so you, you just, you just never knew. It was, it was an extraordinary, you, you, you learned by, by observation, by listening. It was never direct. It was, you, you just had to, and, and this is why, you know, I lived with him, I, I cooked for him, I gardened for him. It was like a total immersion experience. Uh, but it had a profound uh, um, effect on me. It was he introduced me to a, a way of life, a way of thinking that was so at odds with my education. Um, it was a real, real privilege to, to spend. And then he died shortly after I left. So I had a, the last two years of his life with him. Hmm. What was that contrast then what, between your the education that you'd experienced and that had cost your father a great deal of money and <laughs> what, what you learned from uh, Michael Cardew? What you say? I mean, you've described these moments of uh, of Zen-like uh, utterances. Uh, you know, you haven't begun to take this the, the shape inside of you, for example, or these pots, these uh, bowls are just. Uh, actors on a stage they're not real people this sort of thing um i'm curious actually in those moments did you did you know what he meant did, could you see what he was pointing to uh, and then it took time to understand how to make it not so or no at the time i it, it, immediately I, I i didn't see 
what she meant, and, and that was really part of the education. One, one was refining one's own, um, refining one's own way of seeing, and and that took time. It it took time for one's own uh, faults to become apparent. And he was not going to come up and describe them to me. He was just he was criticizing the bowls. He wasn't saying anything about me, but my, it was the bowls were an extension or an expression of my attitude. So it, it you, you had to go you had to go inside yourself. You had to find the place in yourself from which your work was coming. That's where the adjustment. It wasn't like just changing the shape of something on the outside because the outside was just a, a corresponding with the attitude on the inside, which had given rise to it. So it was, a, but you had to find that for yourself. And it was a process of, of, of uh, combination of conversation, observation, trying over and over again. Uh, Michael's son, Seth, worked in the, in the studio and another, another apprentice as well. So it, it, was a, it was a non-rational exploration. It, 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 these, if I had asked Michael, what, what do you mean I haven't taken this shape into myself? Well, he was extremely articulate. He probably could have said something about it, but but he, he it, the, the, the training took place below the threshold of the rational mind, whereas much of my education up until that point had been directed towards the rational mind. So it kind of introduced me to a whole realm of experience that was, so to speak, just below the surface. Uh, that um, and he can open open me up to that to that world. It, it's really the world of the um, the realm that the arts and and poetry and, and and literature addresses. And I think that I had not that it was not available. To be fair, in in my education, it probably would have been. But it's not. If I had if I had perhaps gone more in that direction, maybe I would have found it there. But for whatever reason, I, I didn't. It took this, this, um, uh, this, this meeting with Michael, he was like a force of nature. It, it, it took it took this meeting with him to open me up to this whole new possibility, the possibility, for instance, of, of um, really, it's, it's the experience of beauty, the power of beauty, the, the power of an object to somehow cut through the conceptual edifice through which we perceive reality and to take us directly to that experience. What, what Cezanne said when he said, that, I, want my, I want my work to give people a taste of nature's eternity. I don't want to describe nature's eternity to people. I want, to get, I want them, I want, it, 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 it's much more intimate than that. I want them to have a taste of reality. Well, Michael uh, helped me, initiated me really into into understanding that objects have this power. It's not just words. Yes, the the understanding to a degree can be described in word, words, but this was like a visceral transmission. And it was something completely new in my life and, and quite, it was very powerful. And um, I was very, very fortunate to, to, to have met him early on in my in my life. One last question on Michael Cardew then. Uh, at that time, as you said, you were also heavily uh, involved in various spiritual 
uh, studies, as you outlined previously. Was Michael aware of that? Did you ever discuss that with him? And what did he ever express an opinion on that? Well, um, I don't know how aware. It, it was rather strange, rather a strange circumstance. Michael's wife, Mariel, uh, they they were um, they were married, but they lived apart. Michael lived at Wenford Bridge, um, just below the village of St. Breward on the edge of Bodmin Moor in Cornwall. And Mariel lived in a flat overlooking, overlooking the River Thames in Barnes in London. And Mariel used to, um, to come down from time to time and, and stay, which, of course, I, I loved because she was a lovely feminine presence in an otherwise rather um, male and monastic institution. Um, Mariel went to Collet House, where I had first gone as a 16-year-old and had learned the Mevlevi turning, had learned mantra meditation, Gurdjieff's movements. And um, she was very involved at Collet House. And, and, and so I knew her independently of Michael through, through uh, um, Collet House. Michael didn't know this as far as I know. And for, for a reason why I never really understood, Mariel wanted me to keep it quiet. She, she, she said, don't, 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 don't let on that we know, know each other. And I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this. Michael disapproved, I think, of um, the, the activities that went on at, at Collet House. It was too... Um, I always felt that he disapproved of any attempt to articulate the nature of reality in the terms of the rational mind. He felt that it, it belonged in a realm to which the rational mind has no access, and of course he's quite right, and therefore to which the rational mind has no right to speak of. He felt his work spoke of it, uh, and that one should not speak uh, directly about it. So I think for this reason he um, I think he disapproved of Mario's activities. He, he, and I think that Mario was concerned that if he knew that I was directly influenced, uh, interested in these matters, that it might somehow uh, um, tarnish our relationship. I'm not sure that it would, but, but um, so uh, uh, I definitely kept that side of my life quiet. Um, of course, in the evenings, I would go up to my room and I was reading uh, Ramana Maharshi and Rumi and, and but uh, I was, it was, I was very private. I would, I would never, I would never mention that. And of course, when Mario came down occasionally, we would have conversations about it, but we carried on as if, as if uh, we, we didn't let this shared interest, um, we didn't expose it to Michael. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the last question on pottery then on your career as a, as a ceramic artist. Uh, you had a career of 30, 30 years, over 30 years. And in that time, garnered international renown and um, various techniques you were known for. Um, uh, I don't suppose we need to necessarily go into them. Scra uh, scraffi scraffito, is that how you pronounce yes. it? Yes, Scraffito, yes. Scraffito, yes. yeah. And things like this marvelous uh, work. You talked there about some of the makings of a ceramic artist, but what does it take over a span of 30 years to continue to produce work, to continue to elaborate? I don't suppose you can just repeat yourself 
what does it take uh, in terms of um i don't quite know how to say it actually um the themes you brought up here in terms of your initiation that michael cardio provided you with uh, presumably those themes then un un unpack and elaborate or continue through throughout the arc of a 30-year career uh, what what does it take to um, produce that kind of art over that that kind of uh, sustained period of time uh, i always felt that i was looking for something wanting to express something now i would i would call it beauty i don't think i conceptualized it to myself in those terms at the time but there was always a certain quality that i was looking for in my work when i went to the whenever i was in a foreign city i'd always go to the national museum or the archaeological museums and when i saw the collections of the the ceramics particularly particularly of the of the um of particularly the far eastern traditions the chinese particularly the korean uh, there, there was a certain quality uh, in these works and and i, I always had the, the feeling i i want that i want to make pots with that quality that that expressive that communicative and i always had the feeling that i was failing so there was always a feeling that i was approaching something refining and refining and refining this um, intangible quality which was nevertheless the most important thing about, about about any object that one made and was truly its its expressive power and so i there was always this elusive and yet unformulated goal towards which i felt that i was uh, approaching or always failing to a greater or lesser extent and it was this sense of always failing always being dissatisfied that that kept me going so there was always i always knew at least what the next step was i always felt i was being pulled forward so to speak and all i needed to know was the next step because you can only ever take the next step there was always this feeling as soon as i'd uh, um, i had worked for two or three months had a, had, a, had a firing, looked at the pots. Soon as they were out, I lost interest in them. Now, you might think that's the interesting bit. No, 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 that's not the interesting bit. As soon as you, you look at them and you, you immediately see what's lacking in them. I just wanted to put them on one side to, 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 to get them out of my sight. I wanted to go back to my studio and start again, try again. So I'm making the same thing over. I was making, to begin with, tableware, but more and more, uh, luckily, I was just making bowls. I would just want to go back. I'd, I'd make them over and over again. And then each time there would be this confrontation with the firing. You'd see, I, I felt like, like like the Zen master who said, all I see are my mistakes. When you unpack a kiln, you know, if there was ever a visitor there, they are oh, these marvelous things coming out of the kiln. No, I never saw any marvelous things coming out of the kiln. All I could see were, were the, 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 um, the few... The, the, the things that were wrong, all I could see were my mistakes. And then there was this impulse to go straight back into the studio and rectify those mistakes, try to make something that was, that was the, the, the appro that approximated more and more closely, closely to this idea of uh, beauty, for want of a better word. But then I noticed that towards the end of that 30 years, um, I, that, 
the next step ceased appearing. I, I felt at one stage I've done all I can do. I, I've refined this process. I've taken it as far and I began in the last couple of years, I began to get this feeling uh, there isn't a next step. It doesn't mean to say that I felt that I had arrived. There was never the feeling of having arrived, but it was like I was no longer being pulled inexorably forward towards this, this goal. It was as if it, it kind of petered out. I, I, I had the feeling a number of times in the last few years, I've done everything I can do in this medium. There's, and of course, it, no coincidence at all that at around that time I wrote The Transparency of Things, I began to speak about these matters, and over a period of a couple of years, I began using a different kind of medium. Uh, um, as I said once, I started making bowls out of words instead of bowls out of clay, and that, that, was, no, that was no coincidence, of course, that, that, that my work as a potter just, over a number of years, it, it, it just came to an end as this new possibility opened up. And what's interesting, and it's really uncanny, is that I, the trajectory of my life as a potter is almost identical to the trajectory as my life as uh, um, uh, one who speaks and writes about, about these matters. I started off with, a, uh, I did my apprenticeship, so to speak, with uh, Francis Lucille. I was utterly devoted to him as I was to, to, um, to Michael Cardew. Uh, you know, in both cases, their words were gospel. Um, I, I surrendered myself to, to, to use kind of traditional language. I, I kind of surrendered myself to, to both of them. I surrendered any d desire or will that I had. I just put myself it, it, uh, under them to, to, to absorb and imbibe and learn what they had to give. Because in both cases, I recognized something that, that that's what I want. And, and, and so there was this very, there was this apprenticeship, uh, which lasted longer with Francis than it did with Michael, it was 13 or so years. And then uh, um, I, I, I uh, um, not, I, I never moved away in my heart, but, but I, I, I stopped attending meetings and retreats. I began, it was the equivalent of starting my own studio. I left Michael Cardew's pottery. I started my own, uh, um, started my own studio and started making my own things. I, I did the equivalent. With, with, with Francis, I left, I started holding retreats at church farm. And just as I had done with Michael, the first bowls I made were very similar to Michael's. I remember the head of ceramics at Bonham's auction house said to me once after a few years, Rupert, when are you going to stop making pots like Michael Cardew's? And it had never occurred to me to stop making pots like Michael Cardew's. I was just, just naturally doing what came naturally to me. And I had trained with Michael. So inevitably, I had imbibed his language. And that was language was in, it, it was evident in my own language. It took several years for, for, for Michael's language to fade and for my own voice to begin to express itself. And exactly the same happened with uh, Francis when I started giving my own retreats. I've no doubt that my language, my, my metaphors, my lines of reasoning were all um, highly influenced by him because I had surrendered my mind so deeply to him. It was only over the years that slowly, slowly, slowly his voice faded and, 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 and my own voice began to, to, to take over. And so, so the way I express myself now is almost unrecognizable 
from Francis, just as the pots that I made towards the end of my career as a ceramic artist were completely unrecognizable. You would never have known that I was a, a, a student of, of um, Michael Cardew's, but it, but it takes time. But I noticed it was the same process, just as I was making the bowls over and over and over again, refining and refining and refining and refining. It's exactly the same process. Speaking about these matters, which is really always the same matter, the nature of reality, the nature of the self. And, but, but speaking about it, every time I speak of it, it's a refinement. It becomes more economical, clearer, cleaner, more precise, more experiential, more efficient. And the same process is going on. And I sometimes wonder, because of the similarity of these two apprenticeships, these two careers, for want of a better, although I'd never suggest what I was doing now as a career, but I sometimes wonder whether they will end in a similar way. Remember I said about the pottery after 13 years, I, I over the last couple of years, I thought a number of times, I, there's nothing else for me to say in this medium. I've said, I've gone as far as I can go. I've stretched the medium as far as I can go. It, this is no longer the right medium. And I sometimes wonder with my, with my, love, my love of language, uh, my desire to uh, um, express the non-dual understanding with these clean, clear, efficient um, pathways, lines of reasoning, and, and, and speaking about the same thing over and over again, refining my language. I sometimes wonder whether in a number of years' time, I'll feel I've done everything I can do in words, that I now want to express myself in a different way, what would that way be? I think it would go more towards silence. I think that would be the, the final medium. First of all, it was clay and it was words. So there was a refinement from clay to words. And then I think the, the natural refinement would be from words to silence. And in fact, I notice it now, not so much in my online meetings because it doesn't work so well online, but I, I certainly notice in my live retreats, having started them again, there's more and more silence. There are less words more science. I think that's the way it's tending. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But I, I wonder whether it, it, the, the, the similarity between these two trajectories is so uncannily similar. It's as if I'm kind of following an archetypal process that has been handed down in apprenticeships and, and, and with students and disciples and, and uh, for, for centuries. The, the similarities between those two arcs, uh, if we as another word than career, I suppose, yes. or career, yes. isn't it? Um, was not lost on me actually, and uh, but you've drawn some other parallels there. You know, one of my questions that I had planned to ask you a bit later was: you are uh, quite prolific, actually, and you're in your retreats. You said now it's tending more and more towards silence, but in your retreats, the format is very often dialogue. Uh, with people uh, uh, as one of the main ways of um, expounding on, on these the themes of your work. And um, I was going to ask you, from where does this energy come from? Uh, don't you ever uh, get tired of striking striking that note? You've described your teaching as very simple teaching. And you said you've learned learned only very simple a very simple thing. 
and then it's just expressing that in all these different ways. I wonder, but uh, that, but now uh, hearing you talk about your your relationship to uh, your ceramic work, now I perhaps uh, begin to understand a little bit more about that. I'm curious if you have the same relationship to your teachings as you did to your pots when they came out of the kiln. Uh, perhaps I'll say one more thing about that. I, I remember on one occasion I was uh, I attended a talk of yours in San Jose. And sitting next to me, I was a friend of mine who's very, um, also a very claimed author. And we were sitting there and he was talking to me about what you were saying, but not the content of what you were saying, what he said. Uh, he said it was, <laughs> I can't quite replicate the tone, but he said, you know, the thing about Rupert is he just speaks and you could write it down and it would be a book. He was commenting on on just what you said the way you speak and i know that for instance your team sent me this book of yours being myself and it's more or less a transcription of what you say yeah. and of course yeah. you know, maybe some edits here and there but uh on on the you do speak as if you're reading from your book which then comes from what you've spoken so anyway i'm wondering um do you have the same relationship to your teachings like this book does this book look like one of your old pots to you um, in, in a way, it does. Um, actually, t t talking about the way the book l looks, um, Rob, my um, who does all the design and everything on the book, he, he and I spend a, um, a ridiculous and embarrassing amount of time fussing over all the the, um, the details, the, the the size, the shape, the proportion, the color, the texture, the, the, because it, it's always my intention that when you pick up a book, even before you open it, it should convey subliminally its meaning. And in fact, the best compliment I've ever had from anyone about any of my books was an email I received from someone who, I can't remember, I think it was the, the, what the book that preceded being myself, being aware of being aware. He said, I picked it up and he said, I just held the book in my hand and looked at it in its cover. And the experience took me, the, 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 doing so took me to the experience of being aware of being aware. It was a beautiful, I don't, he, he didn't realize, I don't think, but it was, to me, that was like a, the highest compliment that the, 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 the non-verbal experience of, of just holding the book, look, looking at it, it had conveyed its content. And, and of course, the, the, the same was true of my work as an artist, that that's what I, I wanted to uh, subliminally convey in a pre-verbal way. I, want, I, wanted, I, I wanted my work to take, to, to, like Cezanne said, to give people a taste of nature's eternity. Um, but to, to go back to what you said about being prolific, I was very prolific um, as an artist. Not that I made a lot of pots, which actually I, I, I did do, but, but, but it, was, it was my life. It was not, it was never my work. It was never, that's why my, the word career that I used five minutes ago was inappropriate. It was not a career, it was my life. It was, I, I lived it and breathed it. It was just an extension of my life. So I was, there was never any, my, my workshop was always at, at my home and um, there was no distinction between my life as a work, uh, as an artist and my life at home. And re really the non-dual understanding is, is the same. It, it's the, it's my entire life. And now speaking about it, uh, writing about it, expressing itself, I don't, 
it, it, it's uh, something that's so integral to my life. And I have this great energy. I love to, to communicate my understanding such as it is through writing, through words. There's, there's nothing I enjoy more than being with friends on a retreat, um, exploring these matters. And I have, and I mean this literally, um, sometimes people ask me, uh, I'm not implying that you've asked me this, you, you haven't, but sometimes people ask me, uh, don't you get bored always hearing the same question? I've been asked that a couple of times recently, and, and, and I remember thinking, but I've never been asked the same question. If I thought that I was being asked the same question, then yes, I would be bored. But I have never heard the same question twice. If, if, if I ever did feel that, that would be the time to stop teaching. Because I would be referring on hearing the question, I would be referring to my past. I would not be going to the, the place in that person from which their question comes. And if you go to that place, it's fresh every single time, simply by virtue of the fact that the person's question is their real question. It's coming from their, from their understanding, from their feeling in that moment. And your, your, your job as a so-called teacher, for want of a better word, is, is, is to go to that place in themselves, to find them there, to meet them there, and then to begin to walk with them. So uh, I, I, I never have the feeling of, of being bored, nor is it tiring. What I tend to notice is that at the end of a, of a week of retreat or two, two weeks of retreat, I tend to notice then I, I'm tired. Um, but during, during the event itself, um, it, it's, it's tiring in, in that a tremendous amount of energy, you're, you're, you're giving out a tremendous amount of energy, but it's not tiring in, in a draining or exhausting way. It's, it's tiring in, in a, actually in a very pleasant way. You just feel you're giving the whole of yourself to whatever is in front of you. And if it's tiring, well, too bad. So what? You're just, just giving yourself completely. What, what else would one rather be doing? And I think it was exactly the same in, in the pottery. I was just giving myself 100% to, 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 to my life as a potter, making, making these things. It seems like in art, for example, there are different ways to appreciate a piece of art. One way is for art to strike you as it is. Like you said, you look at the book and it's just something about it or the whatever the piece of art might be. And on its own merit, if you like, or on the way in which it impacts you, it's valued somehow. And that could be, if you have the eye for it, technical detail, for example, or it could just be something you know ineffable about it that just gets you. And then the other way, of course, is to derive the value of a work inferentially by uh, the value of the creator. Uh, by in that sense, uh, there can be uh, uh, and perhaps this this is somewhat to do with marketing, but there can be a sense of a ma making a something of the creator, creating a legend or making a celebrity of them, and so on. So the piece, in a certain sense, becomes owning a, a piece of them, or it becomes a proximity to that sort of legend, if you like. And I wonder if uh, maybe we're stretching the similarities, or I'm stretching the similarities too much here. But I wonder, your, your work uh, now, constantly coming back to direct experience, direct experience, um, always bring, coming back to that. 
I wonder also if this dynamic is possible in terms of spiritual teaching or whatever we could say, that sort of cult of personality, if you like, um, or to say it more psychologically, projection, looking at you on the stage or whoever it might be on the stage and saying, wow, you know, this is the really enlightened person and et cetera, et cetera, perhaps missing the point in that way. I'm wondering what you think about that idea um, becoming, as you have, so well known all around the world now as a spiritual teacher. Um, I imagine uh, you deal with the degree of that people wanting you to be something or someone or something like that for them somehow. Uh, do you experience that at all? And if so, how do you, how do you navigate it? And is the comparison to the art world uh, appropriate here? That's a very interesting question. I think I think what you say is very true in in both worlds. Um, particularly nowadays, the, the, the of the two scenarios you described, you see much more of of, of the latter where the, the work in itself, um, apart from its maker or creator, has no real intrinsic value. And I don't mean intrinsic value, I mean, has no real aesthetic um, or, or even intellectual value. It's, it's a symbol of the maker. And as you rightly say, by owning a piece of the art, you feel that you somehow, subs if not own a part of the artist, you subscribe to a club that is run by the artist. And by doing so, your own sense of yourself is aggrandized by association. I would say that accounts for a lot of today's art world. Um, now, going on, uh, transferring that to the, to the spiritual realm, I think a lot of that also takes place. Um, the, as you say, the cult of the personality, um, in which the, um, uh, you, you, your affiliation with a particular person um, is is uh, cultivated and, and promoted by the person, and in in a way that becomes the it, it, the that becomes primary in in, in the relationship. You and, and or in, in, ironically, one's ego, one's sense of being a separate self, is aggrandized by association with a person who in this particular field is considered to 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 um, uh, have a certain stature and and, and, and ironically in, in this field particularly when so much of spirituality is about the diminishing of the sense of separation or the ego so to what extent do i feel this takes place in in my life um, for the first couple of years, when I started um, speaking about these matters, I was not aware of people's projection. I was naive about this. And, um, but after a couple of years, it, it, I, I couldn't help but notice it. And I also realized 
that it was um, that it was that it was naive of me not to notice it, but that also it was um, it was not only naive of me, but but that it was my responsibility as a so-called teacher by putting myself in the position that I was in, speaking, holding retreats, holding meetings. I had a responsibility not to pretend that this projection was not taking place, but to see the projection, to understand it, and to learn to deal with it, to, um, to, to turn the projection around and, and, and hand it back. Now, it took me a couple of years to uh, notice the projection. If I think, if I'm honest, I didn't really want to notice it. There was a degree of naivety in myself, and I think also a degree of denial in my, I just didn't want to acknowledge that it was happening. And I, I realized, as I said, that this was, it was irresponsible of me not to acknowledge it. So after a while, I began to, to notice it. And I began to, to I hope, develop um, skillful ways of turning it around. But above all, being very careful not to buy it or pull for it in any way uh, because it's hugely seductive or at least it, if there is an ego present who uh, um, requires other people's uh, um, respect uh, adulation admiration if one's if one's sense of oneself needs to be enhanced by other people in this way, then, you know, that there's being a spiritual teacher is 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 perfect for for such an ego. And, and we see this so often. Um, so um, I had to check um, one that there was nothing in myself that was uh, subtly being um, enhanced or aggrandized by this by their increasing respect and admiration that i i was receiving um i was very clear uh, that there wasn't anything in me but it's something that it's not just a, a recognition i came to once it's something that i've always been very vigilant about and then i i took great care to um to find ways of turning the projection round, of not of not unbuying it, and I remember having a very interesting conversation with um, my friend Bernardo Castrup in in the early days, and he said, "Well, the trouble is, Rupert, the more you do to throw yourself off the pedestal, the higher the pedestal becomes." And um, I recognise that there is some some truth in that. That that. I, for instance, I, I, I recognize at least that one can seem to try to throw oneself off the pedestal whilst at the same time subtly pulling for people's attention. Somebody asks you, um, this never happened to me, but, but somebody asks the teacher, why do you continue to allow uh, um, your students to come and kiss your feet and and or, or, and, and 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 you answer oh it it's nothing to do with me it's just i just leave them free to do whatever they like it's a, 
this, this pretense that what is taking place is not being orchestrated by you, to, to me is an example of someone who tries to take themselves off the pedestal, but in the fact at the same time colludes with their being on the pedestal. So um, I'm, I take a lot of care um, in my retreats not to send any message whatsoever that I'm a different from anybody else. And of course, I, no one would actually say that, but th th there are ways that one can behave. One can behave in, in such a way that you convey this attitude subliminally. For instance, I remember the first time I went to Omega and I was being, the first time I held a retreat there, I was being shown around the, the I think you've taught at Omega, haven't you? you yeah. So you remember the big dining hall there where seats 400 people and that so I was shown around and then the person showing me around said, and then this little room here, this is where the teachers eat. And I remember she took me into this miserable little room, shut off from everywhere else where I was supposed to have lunch and dinner on my own. I looked at her and said, you've got to be joking. You, you expect me to have dinner in here on my own. But what about all my, all, all my, um, all the people that are attending the retreat? I, I want to, to be, to me. oh, no, no. She said, this is, this is so that you can be apart from them so that they won't bother you. So, so. And, and I realized, so uh, of course I, I, I never use the room if, if I, um, if I'm on a retreat, I just sit down at a table like everybody else and, and um, join in the, the, the conversation. And it, it, actually, it was on this last retreat on the West Coast at the Mercy Center, I think I said during a meeting once, we were talking about this, and I said, you know, there's nothing I like more than sitting down at a meal with a whole group of you around the table and to be completely ignored by you. It's like nobody, nobody stops talking. Nobody turns to you in a deferential way. No, no, no. It's just like you sit down like everybody else. Yeah, 10 minutes later, your next door neighbor might turn around and say something to you. But I, 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 I go out of my way to, 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 to be exactly the same as, as in little details. I sit in the same kind of chair. I don't need to. Why should I sit on a chair that's more comfortable than everybody else? Why should I sit on a chair that's bigger than anybody else's? They've got to sit for two hours on a chair. Why shouldn't I? Um, I don't expect people to stop talking when I come into a room. Well, why, why should people stop talking when I come into the room? I mean, nobody stops talking when anybody else walks into the room. It's, I, I, and these are the little details, but they're not little details. It's in these kind of behaviors where a, a, a sense of hierarchy is established. Um, uh, I could give you more examples, but but su su suffice to say that I'm, I I, I think I, I've searched my heart. I think this is a hundred percent genuine. I, I I do my my very best, and I I say to people, please do not think of me or refer to me as a spiritual teacher. I do not consider myself a teacher. I like friendship. I I like to, I want to be your friend. I want to be. I want you to be my friend. It's a, like a kind of spiritual friendship. That, that, that's, the, that's the quality of this relationship. There's absolutely no hierarchy in it. If, if you're asking me a question, you temporarily become a student. 
I temporarily become a teacher. But if I ask you a question, then I become your student and you become my teacher. And in the absence of any question or answer, we're neither a teacher nor a student. We're just friends with no hierarchy at all. So I think that's very important. And I think it's in these little details that the real teaching takes place. I think this is where the, the I think this is where you can really tell the quality of a teaching, not just in the fine words that are used, but, but, but in the actual quality of the relationship that takes place in the community of people that, that, that gather around the teaching. Sorry, that was rather a long-winded answer. I hope I've, I've responded to your, to your question there. You, you have, yeah. And uh, you're right, it's not only the grand, uh, grand behavior, it's also the guru doth protest too much kind of behavior. Uh, absolutely. And it, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and that is more pernicious in a way, because it, 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 it escapes, it, 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 on the whole, it, it remains below the, the, the radar of, of, of the, our rational mind. So it, it escapes notice and, and is the more dangerous for it. Yes. Yeah. So when you're uh, an artist working in ceramics, with the sort of, uh, it's your life, you described it as your life. And I would imagine that there's something about coming back to the workshop day after day that can keep you honest uh, uh, in the midst of acclaim or whatever else, smoke might be blown in your direction. Um, I would imagine. I can't see a correlation with what you're doing now. I can't see many uh, so I'm asking, I suppose, is there a similar sort of, is there a workshop that functions to keep you honest in some sense? Um, one of the things that I uh, think can happen in both worlds, it can be a sort of feedback loop. Oh, uh, they, they like it. I guess it must be good. I guess I must be good. I guess I must be a great artist. Or I guess I, I, guess I must be, you know, enlightened. Gosh, maybe these words, which I hadn't really thought that much about, Wow, they're responding very well. Gosh, uh, I guess I must be. Maybe I've got it. I guess I have it. <laughs> you know, something like this. This sort of feedback loop in a way. So I'm wondering um, if if there's a, a workshop for you in that same way. And also, I'm wondering that um, something that perhaps can happen is the artist or themselves can begin to confuse the acclaim with the. Uh, value of what they're producing. So therefore, they can become artists of attracting acclaim. Yes, as a via pots. Yes, as yes. opposed to artists of, you know, ceramics, who attract, you know, which attracts acclaim via the ceramics. Yes, yes. Um, so it seems that's harder to avoid in your current activities than your prior activities. Perhaps I'm wrong about that. You're right, because uh, as an artist, it was my it was my work that went out into the world on my behalf. I just spent 30 years in my studio. So the acclaim was indirect. Whereas what I'm doing now, it's me as a person that goes out into the world. And it is me as a person that 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 receives the acclaim. So it's um, it's not true of all artists who become 
public figures, but I was very private as an artist. I spent my life in my studio. I never went anywhere for 30 years, except for, you know, when I was having an ex exhibition or my family, of course. But um, so I was never a personality as an artist. I was rather, actually rather reclusive. I just spent my life in my studio. Whereas now it's obviously, uh, I go as a person to speak at meetings and, and retreats. So the, the, the claim is direct. You know, I, I think that if one is um, relatively free of ego oneself, I don't mean to say that one is perfect. I don't think anyone is perfect, but to the degree that one is free of ego oneself, that message is subliminally conveyed without having to speak of it. And it places the other in the correct relationship to us. And that if we in turn are in the presence of someone with very little ego, we are almost compelled, at least those of us that are sensitive to these matters, it's not always the case, but we are almost compelled by the way they comport themselves to behave in a reciprocal way. So I feel that I get very little um, adulation. Um, yes, pe people respect me, but no more than I respect them. There's very little on my on my retreats. If you didn't, if you didn't actually attend one of the formal meetings themselves, you'd be hard pressed to know who was in charge. If you if you're walking around the, the the building, apart from informal meetings, obviously because I'm sitting up front, but apart from that, you you wouldn't know who was who was in charge. Um, So I don't, I don't feel that, that, that now I, I feel people are, I think the quality of people that come to my meetings and retreats is so, is so high. They're such a refined group of people that they are not themselves people who need to make me into a, a, a great personality, a great teacher that then that, that, because that that's an, an ego that needs to do that. Um, and even if someone does come to begin with, with that attitude, they get taken up by the by the group of friends, the people that have been around this teaching for a while, and they very quickly that that projection uh, is dropped that they learn from the others from the old timers, very quickly that, that this is just is we just don't do that cult personality thing. After a couple of days, people, people get the hang of it. So it, I don't really feel it's something I have to deal with very much now. Yeah, very fascinating. Thank you. So we have only a little time left. And we haven't really talked much about uh, your teachings themselves. But that's a little bit deliberate. I think it's been so fascinating what you've said. And you've actually said an awful lot about about your approach and of course your 
I mentioned you're prolific all over the internet. Just type in Rupert Spira on YouTube and many, many interviews going into great depth, yes. many, many talks going into great depth. So um, that's all that's all readily available. And I'd encourage people to to check it out. A couple of, a couple of questions, though, in that area. Um, You've said, and this is, I think, a great quote, I modeled myself from Ramana Maharshi for 20 years and failed spectacularly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's very interesting. And you also said, and now we're covering a lot of ground in, in, um, in two statements, that your time with Francis Lucille uh, helped you resolve an inner conflict you had between your love of truth and your love of beauty. Yes. I'm wondering yes. if you could explain those two statements. Yes, certainly. Well, when I was young, I had these these two loves. I I, I loved uh, these two overriding interests. I'm talking now, kind of my my late teens through my twenties, when I had my first studio, my first workshop. By day, I would be making objects, making pots. You could hardly get an earthier uh, profession than making pots out of clay and water and fire. And, and by night, I was going back to my to the converted barn where, where I um, lived, uh, um, practicing mantra meditation, studying Ramana Maharshi, I was passionately interested in in truth or reality, for want of a better word. So I had these two loves, and uh, um, uh, of course, I the third aspect of I also loved love itself. I loved relationship, but um, there were these two. Um, Two main interests: uh, um, truth and and, and and beauty. But the um, in the classical uh, system of Advaita Vedanta, <clears throat> it, the, the um, as you well know, the approach very often starts off with a negation of objective experience. I'm not my mind. I'm that which is aware of my mind. I'm not the body. I'm that which knows the experience of the body. I'm not the world. I'm that which perceives the world. The, the classic neti neti, I am not this, not this, not this approach. And some traditional schools of Advaita Vedanta don't go further than that. Uh, and I don't mean any criticism by that, it's a valid path, but they, 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 uh, they stop at what I call the inward facing path, this turning of the attention away from the content of experience back towards the source of attention, awareness itself. And that was, uh, um, that was the path I was initially on. And so in this in this approach that there was um it was very mild in 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 my case there was no in in, in the teaching that I was studying there was no rejection of, of the world and the body but it was not really included in one's meditation in one's exploration um now um by day I was making objects out of out of um, clay, water, fire. So there was a contradiction here for me. I loved making things, objects. And yet philosophically, I was always being, I was always turning my attention away from the object, objective content that the, the world was considered a distraction. Um, objects were considered to be made out of stuff called matter as opposed to one's true nature of pure consciousness. So there was this tension, this conflict between in me, between my love of objects and my interest in that uh, 
which knows the objective content of experience. And, and this was a, it was, it was, um, it was a source of conflict for me. I felt that these two passions were somehow mutually exclusive. And it was supported at least subtly by the, the classical Advaita teaching. And it wasn't until I met Francis, and it was it's one of the things that I'm perhaps most grateful for, that I, that, that I realized that my love of truth and my love of beauty are in fact, then they're not mutually exclusive. On the contrary, they are the same love. The beauty is just the name we give to reality when we approach it through perception. And truth is the name we give to reality when we approach it through thought and love. It's the name we, or happiness is the name we give to reality when we approach it through emotion. But I had considered truth and beauty to be opposite and therefore in conflict with each other. And it wasn't until uh, I met Francis that I realized that this was a misunderstanding, that they were in fact two facets of the same love. And really that that reconciled something that had been really very troubling for me. And in fact, my career as an artist kind of began to take off then because it was no longer, I, was, I no longer felt apologetic about it. I had felt apologetic at least to a degree about it because it somehow conflicted with my study of the Vedantic tradition. Now that this removed that conflict and it was enabled, it enabled me to give myself 150% to my work as an artist without holding anything back for the sake of truth. Yes, that's quite remarkable. That's quite remarkable indeed. What did it do for your search for truth, for your study of truth? That's what it did for your art. What did it do for your study of truth? Did it bring something to that? Or open that up in a similar way that it opened up your ability to give yourself 150% to your work as an artist? Yes, I think up until that time, my, my love of truth had been something that I kind of explored in private in my bedroom early in the morning and late in the evening when I wasn't at work, when I wasn't doing anything else. It was a, I never spoke about it to anyone. It was a private interior um, exploration. And of course it carried on during my day, but it was something inner, private, inner. I think this, this remove, and, and of course my my interest in beauty was to do with my work in the world, objects, materials, activities. And this, this I think it removed uh, not only the conflict between my love of truth and my love of beauty, but it brought my love of truth out into the world. It, it, it ceased to be something private. It integrated more with my everyday life. Uh, the, 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 this barrier between my internal life and my life out in the world, it, it, it began to diminish. Um, I, I, uh, I didn't feel there were, there were two camps in my life, two, 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 two different elements that, that they, it, it kind of unified my life everything I was doing, it was all essentially about one thing. Marvellous. Now, perhaps one question to, to end then on a little bit on this theme. One often, one sometimes hears of artists uh, who are also involved in 
uh, the study of truth, as you could say, or religious or spiritual uh, leanings, whatever we could say. I know this is a horrible way of saying it, but nonetheless, there you go. I've said it that way. <laughs> um, and that as they go deeper into the, so to say, spiritual side, uh, actually, that can eclipse the art. And they, in a certain sense, they, they can no longer produce the art because either something has been resolved uh, in themselves that makes the the friction that seems necessary to to sort of uh, motivate art uh, somehow that's been resolved or quieted by the their spiritual quest or so. So one sometimes hears that that oh, I was a poet, I was a this, I was a that, and then X Y Z. I I you know I had an experience or over time. Um, it, the spiritual side just sort of subsumed the art somehow. And yes, uh, yes. in your case, it's very interesting that the deeper you went, it seems, at least through a lot of your career, actually liberated your art more. Yes. That's very interesting. Yes. And it sounds like also you were saying there was a sense of complete uh, of completion, uh, for want of a better word, in your artistic arc that happened to coincide with the uh, beginning um, yes. or overlap with the beginning of your current arc of, of the work you're doing now. And it wasn't necessarily that you had so many invitations to speak that you didn't have time to make pots anymore, or that you uh, were so became so uh, absorbed in the spiritual uh, view that you no longer saw any uh, value or motive uh, to, to continue art. So I suppose my question now is, how do you see that relationship then between now between uh, these uh, different aspects of your life and that crossover period have i characterized it correct correctly and if not um where have i where, where have i mischaracterized you and what do you think of the the storyline of the artist being eclipsed by the spiritual uh impulse yes yes i think I think for many artists, uh, suffering is the fuel of their work. And the, their work is the means by which they explore that and um, they seek refuge from their suffering in their work. And it's for, for some artists, it's only while they're working that they feel relief from the tyranny of their suffering. Now, uh, and, and I'm, I don't mean to imply in any way that, that there's, there's anything wrong with that. Or, or, however, if that is for, for those for whom that is the case, if they become deeply interested in, in spiritual matters and begin to find relief from their suffering through their spiritual inquiry, then the motivation that previously underlay their art will uh, uh, diminish and they may no longer feel any motive to work. As you say, that their, their impulse to, to, to work will be eclipsed by their interest in spiritual matters. However, not all artists are motivated by suffering. Um, it's quite possible that one would be 
motivated as, as an artist to 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 um, to penetrate through, as for instance Cezanne was to 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 penetrate through appearances to to to, to somehow apprehend the reality that is appearing to us as the world and that one's art is the means by which one makes that exploration into the into the reality of the world that we perceive in, in which case uh, one's work as an artist is of the highest spiritual order it, it is what a, a mystic is doing um, either penetrating deeply into themselves to know the essential nature of themselves or trying to penetrate through appearances to, to see the, the unity of being that lies behind the multiplicity. In which case, the more deeply one goes into one's um, spiritual inquiry or practice, uh, um, the, the, the more deeply this informs your work as an artist and your work as an artist will grow with as you mature spiritually. Now, I think I I'm in the latter camp. I'm not to say that I didn't have my fair share of suffering as I grew up, although I had basically a, a happy childhood and a, and a happy youth. But my, I never uh, um, approached the arts. I never had the desire to become a potter in order to uh, relieve suffering. Uh, on the contrary, when I, when I first saw that exhibition at the Camden Art Centre of Michael's, I, I, was, I was blown away by the experience of beauty. It was the first wasn't the first time I'd experienced beauty, but it was, the, it was the most powerful experience of beauty I had ever had. And I just thought, I want to know what that is. I want to make things that have that same power to, to give people the taste of nature's eternity. Suffering didn't come into it. Uh, um, so I think that's why you, you, you very um, astutely uh, observe that, that for me, uh, my, my my work as an artist actually took off. It was liberated, and 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 it followed. It, it just it became deeper and and deeper as my uh, my exploration and investigation of, of of spiritual matters grew and became deeper. They went hand in hand. Fascinating, Rupert Spira. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.